good to see everybody, and uh, this is going to be, this morning, will be the last uh, session for Did God Really Say, our discussion about what does the Bible teach us about hermeneutics, and so we're, we're going to do a little Q&A here. I have several questions, and uh, thank you all for submitting your questions, and, and um, I know some of you uh, who submitted questions are even just watching on the live stream, and, and so thank you, really appreciate that. Although I have to uh, confess up front that um, we probably don't have time to answer all of them, but I've kind of grouped them into three questions. So I think we can cover the bulk of the questions asked uh, in three kind of generic questions. Um, so I'm looking forward to that, and I hope it'll be enjoyable and encouraging for, for all of us. Um, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for uh, this church. We're so thankful for the opportunity we have to worship and serve you. And um, as we've continued to remind ourselves in these sessions, Lord, we, we long to hear from you. We long to hear your word clearly. It's so encouraging, Lord, to just look at what you have said about your own speech and to be refreshed in the fact, the very simple fact that you speak clearly. And the scripture, your word, always has a quality of clarity. And so any experience we have with... Uh, Anything less than clarity is, is subjective. It's our, own, it's our own issue. And so we thank you that you've given us the resources by grace through the ministry of your spirit to hear your word clearly and to uh, see our hearts grow and conform and to see our hearts trained and our sensitivities increased so that we would hear your word and be ready to hear your word correctly and properly and humbly. And so, Lord, we just um, thank you and praise you for being a God who is there and who speaks. You are not silent, and not only are you not silent, you, you, you speak clearly. And um, this morning, as we look at a few uh, questions and concerns and clarifications, uh, I just pray, Lord, that we would, we would be encouraged once again by the clarity of your truth. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, as I mentioned, we probably only, I'm only going to group all of these questions into about three, um, and so you, you probably won't see your question being um, asked and answered, but you'll probably see the kind of the slot that it fits in. Um, and so uh, I just, on the PowerPoint here, I just worked through kind of three generic um, categories, and I think that's, that's going to cover all, all but maybe one or two that should cover everything that was asked, uh, or at least come close to touching on it. So... Uh, that way we can still end on time. So let's just dive right in. First of all, I was appreciating questions um, regarding uh, what I would call a difference between um, meaning and significance. And so, um, you know, one question, I think, I don't know if that, that first slide is, is ready to go. The guys, the guys are doing a phenomenal job, by the way. Like, I dropped that off with three minutes to spare and <laughs> leave them with no time to work with it, and they always have it ready to go. Um, so, multiple significances versus single meaning. Um, uh, this question kind of covers some of the questions that you, you would have had about um, um, do, you know, do, do, do texts mean different things to different people, different audiences at different times? Or um, can, can something that's predictive, can it have a meaning that would change? And so, well, let, me just, let me just deal with this, this question, first of all, from the standpoint of a very simple illustration from the scriptures. Um, you're, you're very familiar with Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, let's just go ahead and real quickly turn there. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Here's one example of a, of a prophecy 
um, that does have multiple fulfillments. And so I'm, I'm going to give you kind of, this is, this is going to sound like I'm giving you two different answers. Uh, the first answer is going to talk about, we're going to talk about multiple fulfillments. And that doesn't mean that there's multiple meanings or even multiple significances. But here's a prophecy that has multiple fulfillments, and that's actually um, a very important function of prophecy. So Isaiah 7 is the prophecy that you're probably much more familiar with. Um, That would be the prophecy about a virgin giving birth to a son, and the son's name is Emmanuel, God with us. And it's a prophecy about the virgin birth of the Messiah, the, the divine Messiah. And so if you look at chapter 7, verse 14, there's the famous verse quoted in Matthew. Um, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now this is an important, important prophecy, but it's also, once again, one of those prophecies that are so often misunderstood because it's ripped out of context. And you drag that verse kicking and screaming from its context, and you're going to be left with a really confusing um, New Testament uses of this, of this prophecy. But when you read Isaiah 7, it's very straightforward. You have a secular threat to the throne. There is a uh, pagan king named Tabeel uh, who's going to be seated on the throne according to the plans of Assyria and um, Damascus. So if you read verses 1 through 9, you can read about this plot against the son of David against the Davidic king who's sitting on the throne. This is a plot, much like we looked at in Hosea, much like Jezreel, where Jehu went to kill Amaziah and, and, the, and the king of Judah. So this is an antichrist assault on the, on the Davidic line, on the seed promise. And so in that context, where that's, under, that's a threat, Isaiah encourages the people of Israel with this promise that, guess what, don't worry, Here, here's a sign. You're going to see a virgin give birth to a son, and you're going to call his name Emmanuel, and you don't have to worry about this threat, because even before that child is two years old, this threat's going to be eliminated. That's the, that's the basic prophecy. Now, of course, it's confused because people say, oh, no, it should just be translated, a young woman's going to give birth, and, you know, which, which my, my snarky remark to that is, well, that's some sort of sign. Here's the significance that you need to look out for, a young woman having a kid. You know, something that's happened, you know, billions and billions of times over and over. I mean, that's not much of a sign. That doesn't rule out anybody. <laughs> um, and so the sign is obviously very significant because it is actually a virgin. And you won't have to worry about this threat because God is going to get the Messiah on earth in human form. And the threat against the seed promise will not succeed. So in verse 14, in the context of chapter 7 at large, is a very encouraging prophecy. Now, if you turn to chapter 8, chapter 8 is probably a lesser known part of the prophecy, but God continues communicating through Isaiah, and the Lord tells Isaiah in verse 1, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, and I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. So I approached the prophetess. And she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said to me, name him Maharshalal Hashbaz, which is actually the phrase from chapter 8, verse 1. So that's the name of this boy. Notice, obviously, there's so many radical differences here. Between chapter 7 and chapter 8, these are not the same prophecy. Um, it's, it's, it's one prophecy by way of space, but this is a different, different prediction, namely, 
he starts to predict what's going to happen through Isaiah's natural-born son. He approaches his wife. They have a normal uh, child is born through in this, in this um, wedding, this union. And then you have the son whose name is Maharshalal Hashbaz. So it's not Emmanuel, and it's not a virgin, and nothing else is the same except the fact that it says, verse 4, before the boy knows how to cry out my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So he's basically saying, guess what? Even by the time your son is two years old, or in this case, not two, because I think with, with the Messiah, it was right hand versus left hand, saying mama or dada, that might be six months, that might be a year, but within the first year of this child's life, you're not even going to have to worry about this threat. And so this is also very encouraging for the nation of Israel, but it's a different prophecy because this is a prophecy fulfilled but in Isaiah's own lifetime. So you put that together, and this is really encouraging. Chapter 7, you have a prophecy where Isaiah is predicting the virgin birth of the Messiah himself, which won't happen, as we now know, won't happen for another 350 years. In chapter 8, he's predicting, God, God gives a prediction of something that's going to happen in, in about a one year, uh, about a two year, well, between, yeah, just say, let's say two years to be safe here. Within two years, chapter 8 is going to be fulfilled. So before Isaiah even dies, the nation will know whether this prophecy is legitimate or not. And how encouraging is that for the nation to have a prophecy with a timestamp on it that says, well, we know this guy's legit. I mean, he just, look at what he just said in chapter 8. So we know chapter 7, even though it hasn't happened yet, it's legitimate. This is a real prophecy. And so there's this sense where in one, some of these conversations we have about predictive elements in the scriptures, we need to pay attention to what's actually being predicted because often there are two distinct things being predicted and it would be helpful to just say um, there are distinct fulfillments of distinct prophecies and they go together to serve a purpose. Remember, the test of a true prophet is they speak consistent with previous revelation and whatever they say comes true. And so both of those are important tests from Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. And so right here in Isaiah 7 and 8, you have an example where an immediate fulfillment gives confidence to the people in the audience. This, this is a legitimate prophecy. And then for centuries, we're just waiting for it to come true. And then, of course, it does when Jesus is born. Um, so that's one element where I would say, you know, in regard to this question of multiple significances versus single meaning, that's an example where you have two distinct elements in the same prophecy. There's only one meaning of each, and they're both fulfilled on their own. And you can see why, to validate and to vindicate the truthfulness of a prophet. At the same time, we might talk about other examples where you might talk about the same text or the same prophecy or the same passage, and you might acknowledge, you know what, there are distinct significances uh, for this text. And so let's look at one example. I was reading this last night with my boys and with April, and we looked at Psalm 34. And let me show you something in Psalm 34 that's pretty fascinating. You go over to Psalm 34, and this, this, is, a, this is one of those psalms that's uh, much like um, where, were, where were we at? Uh, Smed, where were we at two weeks ago? Is that Psalm 69? 69. So, so Psalm 34 is, is, has a similarity to Psalm 69. Um, if, you, if you just wanted to mark down in your mind a, a few psalms that kind of read very similarly, you could write down 34, um, 35, 69, and 109. And what those psalms all have in common is they're all Davidic, and they are all written with a sense 
that David is experiencing animosity that he's not culpable for. He's experiencing hostility from the world, people who don't trust in God, they don't believe God's promises, and their hostility against the Lord is splashing out on David himself. And so you'll hear those familiar phrases that you've probably heard quoted in the New Testament, like, wrongfully my enemies, you know, uh, they are my enemies in vain. Like, there's just, it's like he hasn't done anything wrong. In other words, you know, he didn't, he didn't mistreat someone, and now they don't like him. He's simply just been faithful to the Lord, and now people who don't love the Lord and don't trust God's word and don't believe God's word are now hostile to David. And so this is a, a, a suffering for the sake of righteousness, but in a very specific way, he's also the ancestor to the seed. He knows that ever since 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says, you're going, you're, going to be this, uh, you're going to have a son, and he's going to reign on the throne. And so the seed promise that we've studied you know, all the way through the patriarchs, from Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, now to David, has been narrowed. And so the hostility against God's redemptive purposes and the hostility against um, salvation and the glory of God and the nation of Israel, it's all, it all terminates and culminates in David's person now in kind of a unique way. So what we've seen, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit more in the Torah and in Genesis and through, through Deuteronomy, you have the angel of the Lord protecting the nation. His function is to get the people to the promised land and to protect the seed promise and to protect God's glory because he's promised we're going to redeem this people and we're going to glorify the, the, you know, Yahweh in heaven. And that's the angel of the Lord's function. And so when people come against the nation, the angel of the Lord is an adversary against the adversaries of Israel and he's a, um, an ally with the allies of Israel. And now when David starts experiencing hostility, he starts evoking the same function of the angel of the Lord for personal protection. That, this only means one thing, but you're going to see that it has different significances for David than it would for me. I'm not in the seed line. If I, if I got killed today, the seed promise is not in question. So... This text only means one thing, but the significance for David is much different than the significance for me. So look at Psalm 34. Um, let's just go ahead and, just for the sake of the context here, let's just read the first couple of uh, paragraphs. Um, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and rescues them. Okay, now, that's the first two stanzas of this psalm. I, I did skip over the historical tag, so go look at the superscription there underneath Psalm 34. Um, you'll probably have something similar to a Psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Abimelech being the pagan king, he's on the run um, from Saul, he's over in, uh, the Philistia, uh, in Philistia, and so King Abimelech is, is the king there in Philistia, and so now you've got David, the, the, the son of, uh, I mean the, the king of Israel, who's on the run, and the, all of this hostility and animosity coming against him um, is as to do with his being in the line, in, in the seed of the seed promise. And so now with this hostility and he's on the run, he's acknowledging, I'm trusting in the Lord. 
I'm going to make the Lord my trust. I'm going to rest in the Lord. I'm trusting in the Lord. And he's so encouraged by God's faithfulness to his promises regarding the seed promise and his own protection that he can't help but turn and tell everyone who's going to sing this hymn in the nation of Israel and say, you should worship the Lord with me because our God is awesome. Our God's amazing. And he starts to get really specific. In verses 4 to 7, he starts to get specific about how the Lord delivered him and how the Lord protected him. Now, this doesn't apply to everyone, everywhere, in anything. So you, you might read Psalm 34, verses 4 to 7, and say, okay, he's saying the Lord protects him, and now he's turning and telling everybody, hey, if you trust the Lord, you know he's going to protect you. So what about everybody who's ever feared the Lord, and they had to suffer for their faith? Is Psalm 34 a lie? Is this disproven by the martyrs of the English Reformation? And so suddenly you start to realize, hmm... What does that actually mean? Well, notice again in verse 7, he's in, in calling on the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So let me give you a really bad interpretation. Does that mean that if you fear the Lord, you can call on the angel of the Lord and he's going to help you make that last second free throw? Lord, I'm putting all my eggs in my basket of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is going to protect me because I fear the Lord. And then you miss. And now Psalm 34 is a lie and God's a liar. No. No, not at all. What is the function of the, of the angel of the Lord? The function of the angel of the Lord is to get the people to the promised land. And the function of the angel of the Lord is to accomplish the seed promise, to reverse the curse, to establish a reign of righteousness, and to make sure that all the redemptive purposes of God come to fruition. If David perishes that promise falls apart. The significance for David is much different than the significance for you or I. If I die in a car wreck today, the seed promise is not in question. If David died running from Saul, if he died at the hands of Abimelech, the seed promise is over. There's no son on the throne. This is well before Solomon is enthroned on David's throne. And so you can see, wow, okay, Psalm 34 only means one thing, but there are different significances for different people. So one, and let me, let me pause on that real quick on, on the Psalm 34 illustration. Let me just say this. I really appreciated one question was very specific about what about, you know, in, when, you look at, when you read passages in the New Testament, uh, even cited a study Bible saying, hey, what about when, when somebody says, hey, this, this passage here, uh, citing Matthew 10 regarding the disciples, um, uh, Jesus makes a statement about to the disciples and he's instructing them, but this also has significance for the end times after the disciples died. And, and that's, that's a great question because what the question is, is when I read my Bible and I read a historical event, like Matthew 10 was the example given in that question, or even any of the uh, more, more uh, future-oriented discussions, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, the Olivet Discourse in, on either, in any of the Synoptic Gospels. When you read that, um, does it just mean one thing? Yes. Does it have different significances for different people? Yes. Yes, it's true. Jesus can be talking about something in the future, and it could mean something different for 
the nation of Israel or even the church or whatever. The point is, is we have to establish meaning. What does this mean? And then we'll know how it applies. So here's a real simple way, and this is one that I know everybody will appreciate. Um, this doesn't necessarily help you in every specific text. But um, sometimes I've pointed out, you know, <clears throat> we've got to pay attention to when, when we talk about interpretation and applying it to ourselves, we've got to start with meaning. What does this mean? And sometimes when people um, don't appreciate the distinction of what's happening in particular contexts, I might point out an example, like a little snark snarky example. Um, I might ask, hey, do you obey God's commandments? Yes, I will obey the Lord with all my heart. Have you killed your son yet? What? You know, well, Genesis 22, right? So you can see where that's going. Why, 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 why haven't you obeyed Genesis 22? Well, that's to, that's to Abraham. Right. It only means one thing, but it does have a different significance for Abraham than for you, doesn't it? I hope, for your son's sake, I hope. <laughs> right? So Genesis 22 says, you know, go kill your son. But it's speaking to Abraham. And so the, the meaning is singular, even though the application or significance might be distinct, might be different. So hopefully that helps in some of those discussions about, you know, multiple fulfillments or uh, distinct significances and the differences of significance. Um, I will say this is a little bit more um, abstract, but I, I do think a lot of times if you read, if some of you guys read um, maybe study Bibles or if you read commentaries in, in your devotions as you're studying the Bible, you'll probably come across um, technical terms that are actually intended to be very distinct. And so sometimes if you read these comments, you might not pick up on this difference, and, and that's okay, but let me clarify something. A lot of times when if you read somebody who's writing in a commentary or a study Bible, and they make a comment about meaning, and they also make a comment about significance, they are distinguishing between that principle of multiple significances and multiple me a single meaning. Meaning is, what is this text mean as intended by the author versus a significance would be what is the application for me and so that would be a technical term if, if they use both of those terms excuse me if they use both of those terms like in some study note or in the commentary that's just helpful to realize that they are distinguishing you know the singular meaning that was intended by the author versus how it might apply to various different people in different contexts which would be you know require wisdom applying that single meaning to your situation all right, well, um, and the, the way, and again, the way this was going is we had, we had, I had so many different categories, I knew I was going to have to group them together, and we're already, we've already used a third of our time, so I'm, I'm going to move on, and I, I really had, maybe I can save a little bit of time on, on one of these, so I was hoping we could still have some time to actually interact at the end, but I'm not sure how we're doing on that, so let's look at number two really quick. Second kind of group of, of question here, human authorial intent distinct from the divine author. Okay, the questions here regard, you know, when, when we talk about who wrote Scripture, you know, if I say who wrote Romans, God or Paul, right, the answer is yes. And when it comes to the, the fact that you have in Scripture two distinct authors, God wrote all 66 books, and Moses wrote some of them, and um, David wrote some of the Scripture, and um, Jeremiah wrote some of the Scripture, and Luke wrote some of the Scripture, and, and you go on and on, and you realize, okay, you have two distinct authors, and so when it comes to meaning, if, if as, I, as I mentioned and as I showed you, the scriptures presuppose that the author has the right to determine meaning. We saw that all over the scripture. Um, 
did I not tell you to do this? And then you did this, and that never even came to my mind. Remember that from Jeremiah? I mean, the scriptures presuppose that meaning is determined by authors. So on this particular question, it becomes interesting when we start to realize that there are two distinct authors. And it's kind of common right now for Christian scholars to actually make the, the, the conclusion that because you have distinct authors, in other words, when you read a text out of Romans, you're reading something that Paul wrote and something that God wrote. And so some, some scholars, it's very common right now to be saying that there's a distinct intended meaning. There's Paul's intended meaning and there's God's intended meaning. And this is, this is not helpful. Not helpful at all. There is no distinction in intended meaning. There is no distinction in God's intended meaning and the human author's intended meaning. And to some people, that's going to sound very um, just naive or even insulting. Because sometimes what people say is, I got into a conversation during my PhD with a guy who vehemently disagreed with me on this. He said, look, when God writes texts, there's more in his mind than, in his, than is in the author's mind. And here's the example. I'll just give this to you anecdotally. I'll just tell you the story of how this conversation took place. We were having a discussion about Melchizedek. Um, I was preaching through Hebrews at the time, and so we, we started talking about Melchizedek. And so he, he used the example of Melchizedek, and he said, that's, ex that's exactly what I'm talking about. He's like, John, let's go back to the Old Testament. What happens in Genesis 14? Okay, Genesis 14 is the historical account where Melchizedek is the priest of Salem, and he comes out and blesses Abraham when he comes back from the Valley of the Kings after rescuing all of his family. Now, there's three verses in Genesis about Melchizedek. Three verses. And my friend says to me, when God wrote Genesis 14... Do, did, 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 did he intend to talk about Melchizedek as a priest who is a precursor of the Messiah? And he says, yes. And I said, well, show that to me in Genesis 14. And he says, well, you don't, you don't know it in Genesis 14. His answer is, Moses didn't know anything about Melchizedek as a priest in the order of Christ, but God did. And I said, oh, okay. You're not talking about the meaning that God intended when he wrote Genesis 14. You're talking about what's in God's mind. That's just simply a theological conclusion that God's omniscient. But how does that help us interpret? Because guess what else was in God's mind? Everything that's ever been known by God. I mean, he's omniscient. So we're not talking about which author is smarter we're talking about what was intended when this text was written. When God wrote, slash, when Moses wrote Genesis 14, there is nothing intended in the actual text written about Melchizedek being an order of priesthood that is a precursor of the Messiah. And my friend says to me, oh, absolutely, that's in God's mind when he wrote that. And we know that from Psalm 10, uh, 110 and from Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7. And I said, well, sure, we actually do know that from Psalm 10, 110 and from Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7. The point is, is that David is a prophet. 
he's writing more revelation about the Melchizedekian priesthood when he writes Psalm 110, and he says that the Messiah is a king in the first half of the psalm, and then he says that the Messiah is also a priest in the second half of the psalm, specifically a priest in the order of Melchizedek. When Hebrews comes along and starts to explain the fulfillment of Christ, he doesn't give commentary on Genesis 14, he gives commentary on Psalm 110. Did God slash David intend to communicate the Melchizedekian priesthood as a precursor of the Messiah in Psalm 110? Absolutely. Both God and David intended that when, they, when, when, that, when Psalm 110 was written. And that's what the author of Hebrews is picking up on. He's not giving a commentary on Genesis 14. He only appeals to Genesis 14 to show why David chose Melchizedek as the order who was the precursor of the Messiah. And so what's really important to understand is that what God intends is what the human author intends, which means that meaning is now accessible to us because we can study what did this human author intend by the language that he used and what was common knowledge between the author and his audience. And if we can study that, we can get a lot of clarity. That's where a lot of clarity comes from, is understanding what was common knowledge between the human author and the human audience. And that is you quite often, 99% of the time, accessible. It's accessible to us. We can study that and we can know what's common knowledge between the human author and the human audience. And so that's how we can know this is what was intended. And the divine author does not intend something that the human author does not intend. So here's what happens. Uh, during my, my, my studies, um, I came across a lot of authors who would acknowledge that, you know what, there's a distinct meaning intended by the human author that's distinct from the, the divine author. And so what we want to focus on is the divine author's meaning. And all that meant was it was a quick step to ignore the immediate context and then just go bring in their favorite truths into that passage. And it really started to water down scripture because God says so many glorious things. Let's just be frankly blunt right here. Every time God opens his mouth, it's brilliant, right? Amen? I mean, everything God's ever said is brilliant, and we want to know it, and it's good for our souls because it's part of the whole counsel of God. So the last thing I want to do is mute anything God has ever said by just grabbing something else that he said and saying, that's, that's all I want to listen to. Every time God speaks, we want to listen to everything that he says. And so, so often, the idea of this distinct meaning of the divine author from the human author just became an excuse to just bring in favorite truths and kind of ignore what's being said in the human context of this actual utterance. And um, that became very disappointing to me and very discouraging because I saw the effect of that has on Christians is that it starts to mute your Bible. You start to lose precision. You start to lose clarity and high definition. The illustration I gave is, you take, you know, um, we were at Walmart two days ago and this guy's buying this 75-inch, like, high-definition 4K plasma screen. You know, he's got it on this big cart, and he's like pulling it, you know, everybody's getting out of the way, this massive screen's coming through. Okay, this is high-definition. And so you guys, you guys who, you know, understand technology, this will be a horribly poor illustration for you because I don't understand it all. But I do understand at least pixels, right? So there's the smaller the pixels, it's like the multiple thousands, if not millions of pixels on this screen increase the definition of the picture. And so if you're watching a football game on a 75-inch screen, you've got a lot of definition coming at you. Imagine if you started interpreting each pixel just based on every pixel around it. You say, well, I know that in the big picture here, I'm looking at a football field, but that pixel right there is black. 
And it's supposed to be green because this is a field. Everything else around it is green. This black pixel should be green. Oh, and here's a white one in the football field. Are you kidding me? Everyone knows grass is green. That, that pixel should be green too. And suddenly, everything on the bottom half of the screen is green. You no longer have any lines on the field. No, no more hash marks. No more yard markers. And no more shadows of each individual blade of grass. You just went from 4K high def to like snowstorm bunny ear rabbit reception, you know, of like the 1970s TV. You just lost so much clarity and so much precision. And that's what happens when we interpret scripture and we just say, I'd rather have the divine meaning than the uh, human author's meaning. And God also says this over here, so we're just going to we're going to go with that meaning. We start doing what we I was warning us from from Hebrews 5 where we start interpreting everything according to the fundamentals or whatever is gospel-centered or Christocentric or whatever is according to our, our favorite lens. And in that one truth, which could be a great truth and could actually be a real foundational truth for the Christian life, becomes everything, and we start losing clarity. And so this, this whole idea of a distinct human author versus a, a divine author's intention really has a lot of catastrophic effects for us as Christians when we read our Bibles. So, real quickly, we have seven minutes left on this question. And we look at a couple texts that are quite often used as a, as a proof that uh, there are distinct meanings uh, and distinct intentionalities between the human author and the divine author. So, let's quickly look at um, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a classic text that um, is appealed to for this, to, try to, to try to prove this very point. And um, I'm going to say not quite, not so quick, because this text does not say what a lot of people assume that it means. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. Peter is writing here about the prophets in the Old Testament who were examining the prophecies about Christ. And the question for our purposes this morning is not necessarily everything that Peter's doing in First Peter chapter 1, but really the abuse of this text at the hands of people who want to say that um, there's a distinct intended meaning from the human author as opposed to the divine author. So what did Old Testament prophets really know? What did they really intend? What did they really understand? That's the question here. So I'm not going to deal with everything, but just trying to focus on that particular question as we look at these three verses. So let's read verses 10 to 12. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." <clears throat> Now, when you read commentary on the, these verses, sometimes I walk away from people who try to explain these verses, and it sounds as though I must have just read a text that says, the Old Testament prophets were making careful searches and inquiries because they really didn't understand anything, and they're just kind of wondering, what am I reading? And then I read the text again, and I'm like, well, that's not what it says. It's very clear. Notice, the scripture does say there's certain things that they don't know. But it also says that there's a lot of things that they do know. So let's just, for the sake of time, let's just simply look at those two things. What did the Old Testament authors know and what did they not know? 
Okay, go back to verse 10. It says that these prophets are making careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or what time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Let's start with what they did know. They knew that the Spirit of Christ was in them giving prophecy. The Spirit of the coming Messiah was inside of them giving divine revelation that was true, and they banked on it. They trusted it. They also know that the spirit of the Messiah is predicting the sufferings of the Messiah. So I'm, I'm using the word Messiah because that's the Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christos. So Messiah or Christos, same word, the anointed one. So here it's talking about Christ. And so the way I try to articulate this to help people under, appreciate what's happening here is the Old Testament prophets knew all about Christ. What they didn't know was Jesus. They knew about Christ. What they didn't know was Jesus. So back to what they did know. They knew that the Spirit was the Spirit of the Messiah within them, giving these predictions. Number two, they know that the Spirit, that the, 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 the spirit of Christ is indicating the, uh, truths about the Messiah. Number three, they know that these predicting the sufferings of the Messiah. And number four, the glories to follow. So they know that this is the Spirit of the Messiah, it's about the Messiah, and it's going to include sufferings and future glory. That's not what they don't know. That's what they do know. They, how do they know that? Because God revealed it through the scriptures, through the prophecies that they themselves were writing down. These are the Old Testament prophets who recorded those um, prophecies and recorded those revelations. What did they not know? Verse 11a. Two things. Which person fulfills that role and what that season is going to look like. That's it. There are two things that they don't know in this passage. Which individual is it and what's that season going to look like? And so they're studying the scriptures and they're looking at these prophecies and they, they know this is the spirit of the Messiah within them. And they know that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be in human form and he's going to suffer and he's going to come back and rule and reign in righteousness and showcase the glory of God in a centrifugal force of Zion and nations coming to worship from the outside. Wow. Okay. That's what we know. But who is that individual? And what's that season going to look like? And so they're anticipating. And on the examples of the faithful, it would look like an Anna or a Simeon in, Luke, in Luke's gospel. When Christ shows up and they say, oh, the consolation of Israel, here he is. This is the person. This is the season. I mean, isn't that amazing that Anna and Simeon even knew what was happening? They're not sitting there waiting for the resurrection to know how to reinterpret Old Testament truths that are vague and poor and poorly written and you know, God was stuttering for the first 39 books trying to figure it out. No, they just read the Old Testament. <laughs> and then Christ shows up and they're like, yep, just like God said. Just like God said. So it's helpful in 1 Peter to look at what they do know and then compare that with what they didn't know. Uh, they, they were not confused about Christ. They weren't confused about his sufferings. They weren't confused about his glories to follow. 
Obviously, the disciples were. The disciples were much heavier on the glories to follow than the sufferings of the Messiah. We, we see that all the way through Mark 8 through 10, and that's the confusion that Jesus is remedying as he's explaining the Old Testament to them. But the Old Testament prophets, they certainly knew those things. All they were looking for was who's the individual who's going to fulfill the role of Messiah, and what time, what season, what epoch will that be? What's that going to look like? So this text does not serve as a a truth that would say, uh, the Old Testament saints, they, they didn't really know what they were writing. You know, as if God's intending one thing, here's poor Zechariah writing this prophecy of 14 chapters, and then he gets to the end of it, and he's like, oh, I wish I understood it. Bummer. And then God had this secret meaning the whole time, and then Christ's earthly ministry happens, and now all of a sudden we can read Zechariah and make sense of it because we read it back in. And Zechariah's like, man, I wish I'd, wish I'd had the answer key. I had no idea what I wrote. No, not at all. First Peter says he understood what he wrote. Zechariah is clear. <laughs> no, if Zechariah doesn't include references to Herod and all sorts of details, of course there's plenty more to be revealed. But the point is, Zechariah is clear in what he's saying. And he knows what he's saying. And that's why he's anticipating, well, who's going to fulfill this? Who is going to be this human divine person whom Israel will pierce, that they will look upon and mourn because they killed their only savior? Who's going to fulfill that verse? And Zechariah knew that. It was clear. Um, well, and, that, and now I'm really regretting starting in 1 Peter because that particular question also included a reference to John 11 with Caiaphas. Um, I'm probably going to have to borrow a little bit of time for my third question because I kind of need to deal with this one. This one's also very, very important. Um, John 11. Turn to John 11 for a second because John 11 is another passage that uh, people sometimes go to to think that, you know what, there's a distinction between what the human intended to mean and what God intended to mean. And, and here's a, a passage that would seem to indicate that. And I will admit, on the face of it, it's a much stronger text than even 1 Peter. Um, it, can, uh, it can plausibly look like that's what's being communicated. So John chapter 11, let's pick it up in verse 47. John eleven forty-seven. 47. Uh, Therefore the chief priests... And the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Verse 51. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Okay, now you get to the end of that paragraph and you realize that Caiaphas is an unbeliever. He's part of the high priestly family. So you read in the, you know, you can read about high priests, plural. Um, Annas would have been a former one, Caiaphas being the current one, but it's all the same family. So it kind of stays in that little group of, uh, of men. And so here as high priest, John records that he makes a statement about, you know what? It would actually be expedient for this guy to get knocked off for us to be able to, you know, save the nation. And he's saying that politically. That's a political statement, has, nothing, has no more significance uh, than that. 
How do I know that it has no more significance than that? Because verse 51 says so. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. What was the initiative of Caiaphas? What was motivating Caiaphas when he spoke this? What's motivating Caiaphas is, just take care of Jesus and let's save the nation politically. That's really all he's intending to say. John takes the point, to, so he, he, ta- he makes the point that, you know what? As the high priest here, ironically, even as the high priest, he can't help but make a prophecy of what's going to happen by way of the gospel. And John is making the point, this is not Caiaphas' intention. This is actually the truth that Jesus will expediently die for the nation, but not only for the nation, but for all the children of God globally. And so verse 51 and 52 end up sounding much like 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, about the propitiation of, the, of Christ, not only for our sins, John says as a Jew, but for the sins of the whole world. It's gone global with the atonement. And so that is exactly what John is communicating about the ministry of Christ. But notice what he's doing. He is not saying that that's what Caiaphas intended. In fact, he says the exact opposite. That's not what Caiaphas intended. This statement was not initiated by Caiaphas. The statement about the gospel is something that John points out. How ironic that that prophecy actually would be true spiritually. And so this becomes... The, really the quintessential text for guys to say that, yeah, there's a really distinct divine meaning from the human author's meaning in Scripture. And um, I would acknowledge, John makes it very clear that God intends something with that statement. He could intend something that was given to him in a prophetic fashion that beyond Caiaphas' own intention. But this does not, but in any way, become a foundation for reading the Scriptures that way. It's very clear in the text that Caiaphas is an unbeliever. It's very clear that he's intending political expediency. And it's very clear that John is once again pointing out something that is ironic. John's sense of irony is very thick, and it's throughout his gospel. And this is not at all a statement about what happens in Scripture. Every Scripture is written by a believer, even one's Prophecies that were initially uttered by an unbeliever, like Balaam, those are still written by Moses. All scripture is written by people who are devoted to the Lord and who are intending to say what God intends to say. And so this is by no means a a pattern for um, how to read scripture. In fact, it's the exact opposite. John bends over backwards to explain that actually wasn't what Caiaphas was intending. Whereas every time the scriptures interpret the scriptures, They pay attention to what the human author was intending. So when it comes to scripture, it's very distinct than this ironic prophecy from an unbeliever, if that makes sense. And so it's very important to keep those two things separate. So, all right, we got to move on. We have, hopefully have time for this last one. Last group of questions here. And this one actually was really one question. It it was, but but there were several questions about specific texts. And so I wanted to grab one because I just wanted to end where we could just kind of dive into a text here. So we got 13 minutes to do a mini sermon on Hebrews 2.7 and its use of Psalm 8 verse 5. But the reason why this is a great example is because it kind of becomes an example for all the other texts that were asked about. And really the question is, is does the New Testament author change the meaning of an Old Testament passage? Does that ever happen? And the answer is no, it never happens. No New Testament author ever changes the meaning of an Old Testament text. God meant what he said, and it always means what he says. 
And whatever an Old Testament passage meant when God wrote it is what it still means and what it will always mean. Ironically, most people who um, articulate uh, the view that I described in, verse, in number two, there, that second question about the distinction between human authors and divine authors, they rarely carry out their position consistently. But there's one author who's a, a un, probably an unbeliever. He's, he teaches theology at Duke University. There's one author that I've read who carries it out. And in light of what I'm about to do in Hebrews 2, 7 and Psalm 8, 5, uh, what's fascinating about this one particular author is he's honest enough to say that yes, New Testament authors change Old Testament texts and their meanings. And consistently, it's because of the function of the Holy Spirit. And he says, in fact, what should happen is New Testament believers with the Holy Spirit will find meanings in, for example, Paul, that Paul never intended. Now there we cross a line with a lot of New Testament scholars because they want to protect the New Testament but they're okay, you know, kind of playing fast and loose with the Old Testament, but at least they start trying to draw some line when they get to the New, but it's kind of arbitrary, honestly. So I found one author who's honestly consistent enough to say, yeah, yeah, there is multiple meanings, and the Spirit gives new meanings and new implications and new, new senses and, and new meanings to those texts. And so when you read Paul, you'll, you'll find meaning there because you have the Holy Spirit. You'll find meaning there that Paul never saw, never imagined, never even thought of. So... Let's dive in and look at one particular example. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. Does this change the meaning of Psalm 8, verse 5? This one's a, a great example because it's the one that would, might have more plausibility because on, on first glance, it might look like the author of the Hebrews is actually changing the meaning of Psalm 8. That is not the case. Let's look real quickly at, Psalm, at Hebrews 2. Let's start in Hebrews. We'll, we'll work backwards because this is where the quote happens, and then we'll go back and look at what's actually being said. <clears throat> okay, so we have 10 minutes. Let me read verses 5 through 8 and then make a couple of comments here about the context and then we'll go back to Psalm 8. I think we can do, do this in 10 minutes. Verse 5. For he, speaking about God in verse 4, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. This is a very important paragraph, and it's also important to pay attention to what our author is doing with this paragraph. Our author is making an argument about his warning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I would summarize as a warning against drifting into apostasy. The thrust of the exhortation comes in verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. The warning is you must pay closer and closer and closer attention, not less and less and less attention to what God has said in his word. If you pay, all you have to do to apostatize is nothing. Instead, you need to start paying more and more and more attention to what God has said in his word. That's the nature of this warning. He goes on then in verse 3 to say, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 
Uh, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The point is, is that in the New Testament, God has now spoken in his Son. His Son has shown up on earth, and we need to pay even more close attention to what has been revealed even now. Uh, if, if we must pay attention to the Old Testament, and we perish by not paying attention to it, how much more now that God has spoken in his Son? Because, verse 5, so now read verse 5 as a because, 4 is a because, it's, it's explaining why this, why this warning is so important, because he is not subjected to angels the world to come, but he subjected it to his son, so in the coming age, in the coming world, Christ will rule, and it's imperative that we pay much closer attention to what God has revealed through his son. That's the nature of this argument, and now he proves it by an appeal to Psalm 8. And so, while you're in Hebrews 2, before we turn over to Psalm 8, look again at verse 7. What's going to be challenging for, for some is going to be looking at this phrase here, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Okay? Now hold on to that thought, and now let's go back and look at Psalm 2. I'm sorry, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a, an incredible Psalm, it's, it's uh, very important for biblical theology because here is a psalm about how God has glorified himself through his work in man. Starting in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the vengeful and the revengeful cease. In the first stanza, it's very clear this psalm is about the glory of God. It's about his majesty. It's about his splendor. And then he says in a most interesting statement, and if this is a, it's a familiar psalm to probably most of you, if not all of you, and we almost, I almost find myself guilty at times of just being so familiar with it that I, I miss the significance of what's actually being said here. He is saying God's glory is higher, higher than the splendor of heaven. You go out like we did this summer and look at the stars in the middle of the pitch black sky up at Lake Powell. There's no lights around. And you look at the splendor of the heavens. This is his finger work. God didn't have to put any back, let alone any bicep, into creating the heavens. He just goes, whoosh. it's the work of his fingers. And he just spreads out the expanse of the known universe, flexing no back muscle at all. And Psalm 8 comes along and says, you know what? You've actually displayed your splendor above the heavens. Bigger than the heavens, beyond the heavens, more than the heavens, you've put your glory on display through babes, infants. What? I mean, this is a shocking statement. God is glorifying himself through the heavens? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. And Psalm 8, verse 1. But more than that, God has glorified himself by puny man. Man in his weakness. Man in his inability. 
babes, nursing babes. I mean, it's like, as if, as if it's like, little people aren't weak enough, the nursing ones. I mean, uttered a word yet, an intelligible speech, next to no, negligible uh, physical ability. And God has ordained even greater splendor through that. What are you getting at? If you were singing this as a hymn for the first time, we'd, be, we'd probably all stop singing mid-stanza and say like, huh? Where are you going, David? Like, this is a bad hymn. This one's not going to last. <laughs> this one's definitely getting out of the hymnal before, you know, before the Messiah comes. Verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? What is man that you take thought of him? And the sons of man, that you care for him. You have made him for a little while uh, lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David describes a scene where every beast of the field, every animal in the mountains, every creature in the sea is under the dominion of man. Last I I read in the news, sharks still kill people, bears still maul people. This created order is not yet subdued under the rule of man of man. David is worshiping God for the profound splendor of a divine being who would create all of this, subjugate it under a weak creature, namely man, and give himself extra glory by subduing a cursed version of it and establishing a righteous rule in that human race over a previously cursed creation. God gets more glory for himself by doing that than simply by creating it in its righteousness. That's profound. And that's fact. It's just future fact. But it's still fact. Because Christ is the Son of Man who's going to establish and reverse the curse, just as Psalm 8 expects. But did the author of the Hebrews change the meaning? I mean, he's, he's saying this is a messianic psalm because... Jesus picks up the name Son of Man. And I'm convinced that he he no less had in his mind Daniel 7, verse 13, than he did Psalm 8. Because verse 4 says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? And describes lowly man in a position of dominion over the earth, which obviously Adam fouled up. And Christ is going to establish. And so this is very messianic. But let's get very specific. Did the author change the meaning, particularly of verse 5? That's where the problem really gets acute. This is where it gets worse. Verse 5 says, And you have become, uh, you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Now, if you still have your finger in Hebrews chapter 2, you'll notice that what he says here in Hebrews chapter 2, the English translates it, um, You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. For you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. So there's two two words here I'll make a quick comment on. 
And that's the word translated little while and in the word translated angels. In Psalm 8, in the NAS, it says, you've made them a little lower than God, and the word angels is, is the word God. And so now the question kind of becomes, what's going on here? Okay. Um, interestingly, this word little in both the Hebrew and the Greek translation, now, now the, the author of the Hebrews is quoting from the Greek translation of Psalm 8. And if you read the Hebrew of Psalm 8, and if you read the Greek translation of Psalm 8, they both use words that could mean either little by degree or little in time. Both words, the Hebrew word and the Greek word, have that capacity. It can mean little in time or little by degree. Now, the word translated God is a word, it's typically translated God, it's Elohim. Um, but it really ultimately means a supernatural being, supernatural beings. So now the question becomes, is this supernatural being, are they angels or are they God? That's the real question there. And so that becomes kind of a translational issue. In the Greek translation of Psalm 8, the, the word is angelos, angel. And that's 250 years before Christ comes along. And so the Jewish scribes who were translating the Old Testament they knew that they believed, at least, I'll say it that way for now, they believed that the, the word Elohim here is referring to angelic beings or supernatural beings, not God himself properly, but angels. And so that's really the question. So when you come to a text like this, where, where do you go? Well, the, the question really is, in both texts, you interpret it in its context. And this gets really nervous because if you're reading this and you're thinking, well, I think Psalm 8 is leading me one direction and Hebrews 2 is leading me another direction, well, what's going on? I mean, are they paying, is, is he actually reading his Bible properly? What's, what do I do with this? Well, lo and behold, we pay attention to the context and we find our answer. Go back to Psalm 8. Could, is God saying, you may, is, is David saying about God that you, God, made man for a short while lower than God? I mean, Nobody in the history of interpretation has ever thought that. I mean, maybe, I'm sure there's probably some heretic out there who actually believes that. Well, I guess that's actually, actually kind of a Mormon, you know, Mormon interpretation now that I'm thinking about it on my feet here. It's kind of a Mormon interpretation. It's like we all become gods and we become greater and all that. But when you look at Psalm 8, there's nothing here. David is not insinuating anything about man only being lower than God for a short time. Because, oh, in the future we're going to be greater than God. No, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Rule it out right. What about little degree? I mean, whew, here's God, and then he creates man, and man's only just slightly lower than God. Could that be more foreign to the context? The overwhelming, the, the shock and awe of this whole psalm is, you've actually put your, you've got, given yourself more glory by expanding, the, more than expanding the expanse of the universe, you subjugated that to puny man, nursing babe man. Infant man, weak man, puny man. I mean, everything about this psalm is putting man in his place, expressing shock and awe that God would even pay attention to man. This is not at all saying, but the amazing thing about man is he's just only slightly lower than God and by degree. It's totally foreign to the context. If you take it little by way of time, it's blasphemy. Little by way of degree, it's totally foreign to the context. Now the question becomes, what do you do with Elohim? Well, this is... Throughout the Psalms, it's used of supernatural beings, heavenly beings. And so if you think of the basic meaning of Elohim as heavenly being, that actually gets you to God proper and to 
angels. And so then you have to read it in context. There's several examples of this. You can write down Psalm 97, verse 7, Psalm 138, verse 1, Psalm 82, verses 1 and 6. All of those are in the Hebrew, Elohim, and in the Greek translation, angelos. They translate those as angels in every instance. You can also look at Job. Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, and Job 38. All refer to angelic beings as sons of God, sons of Elohim. And they're clearly angelic. So you have in the wisdom literature, there's about seven examples right there, just very in very close context of how that word would be used for angels. And that's certainly what's happening here. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. The author of the Hebrews picks up on Psalm 8 and says, You need to pay even more close attention to the Son because he's the one who's going to rule the age to come. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and you'll see what he's doing here. And you'll realize that he's not doing anything fancy with Psalm 8, with Psalm 8 at all. He's actually paying close attention to Psalm 8 and he's letting it have its full weight. Because if you take Psalm 8 literally, it actually articulates human rule and dominion over a formerly cursed crea cre creation. And so at the end of the quote, verse 8 is the last line of the Psalm 8 quote. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. It sounds past tense to me. What's going on? David wrote about this dominion of the earth under, underneath man's rule, subjugation of the earth. Well, look at verse 8b. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Still using past tense. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. The author of the Hebrews is taking Psalm 8 so literally that he knows it's going to happen exactly as described, but he's obviously recognizing it's not happening this way yet. And so he interprets it totally literally, and he knows that when Christ comes back and to rule and reign, if somebody has paid less and less attention to the revelation in Christ, they will have spurned his salvation, and he's the one who's going to rule the coming age. And so all you have to do to miss out on that kingdom, nothing. Just pay less attention to his revelation. And so there's rich biblical theology here, and he actually doesn't change the meaning of Psalm 8 at all. So it's just really thrilling when you take the time to go back and look at the context of the Old Testament. So sorry for going a few minutes over time. Let me just close in a quick prayer, and then we'll dismiss. Father, we're so thankful for your word. And once again, just it's so sweet, Lord, to look at the richness of your word. And just we can't help but marvel at what you're going to do for your own glory through lowly man when Christ comes back. And you exalt this lowly race of helpless, hopeless individuals whom you will raise to a position of rulership with you when Christ comes back. That certainly spurs us on to pay more and more close attention to the revelation of Christ. And Lord, we're overwhelmed at how you'll finally get the glory that's due your name. You get more glory for yourself by creating a world and cursing it because of our sin and then actually restoring it through the work of man. That, that could only happen by virtue of Jesus Christ. And you get more glory for yourself by doing that than you even did by creating it in the first place. And so, Lord, as, a, as that serves an illustration, I do pray that that little text would become profound encouragement for us because of what it means, but that it would also be an example of how we can interpret all of your word 
and benefit from every utterance that you've given. Thank you so much, Lord, for speaking clearly to us. We are lowly. We, spiritually, we have no more ability than helpless infants, and uh, we bring nothing to the table but liability. And so thank you for using us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for saving us. And we pray for more grace as we study your word, as we read your word, so that we would give you more glory in our lives and in our relationships. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed.